0: Book Buzz, Harper Collins Book Buzz. Check it out. Do, 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 do. Book Buzz, Harper Collins Book
1: Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Lainey, and today we have a special episode for you today and we're welcoming back to the podcast because she's been on before but we're welcoming back Elle Keck, editor at Avon and William Morrow and I'm going to turn it over. She has a really fun author and book conversation coming so hey Elle. Hi, thank you for
2: having me again. So exciting. Uh, I'm here with the lovely Kat Sebastian who is the author of 13 queer historical romances including The Queer Principles of Kit Webb which is going on sale June 8th I am tremendously excited about this book. I think everyone is going to absolutely fall in love with it. Um, Over the last five, almost five years, uh, Kat has become one of the foremost authors of queer historical romance and has been nominated for so many awards, including this year's Lambda Literary Award for best gay romance for her latest book, Two Rogues Make a Right," that came out last year. So cross your fingers for that, everybody. Um, (laughs) And in the book that we're gonna talk about today, The Queer Principles of Kit Webb, Kat is moving from the Regency to the decadence and wildness of Georgian England with a stunning story about a reluctantly reformed highwayman and an aristocrat who threatens to steal his heart. Kat, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you tell all of the wonderful librarians out there a little bit about you and how you started reading romance and how you started writing it?
1: So I'm one of those readers who always read other genres for the romance plot, but like didn't connect the dots that I actually really just wanted to be reading romance until I was definitely old enough to know better. And I had read a lot of mystery. I had read a lot of fantasy. And then when my kids were babies, I was just in a state and I could not handle anything sad at all. I needed to read a book in which I knew at least like two people in the universe were going to be just like perfectly happy at the end of it. I needed that level of security. And romance is the only genre that did it. And so I went all in. Like I was mainlining romance. Like I had a baby in one hand and a book in the other until I bought an e-reader, and then everything was better. <laughs> then I got like two babies and an e-reader. And so <laughs> I binged, I binge read everybody, you know, like I just like anything that my library had, I bought i i I read. Then I moved to audiobooks and I really haven't looked back, like it's just been back-to-back romance reading since then. And I started writing like somewhere in the middle of that because I had a little bit of free time on my hands. And like, you know, you get the urge to, if you have a hobby, you're like, well, I should definitely monetize this hobby, right? You know, and it's a, it's like a terrible instinct, but it worked, it worked out for me. And um, I just really wanted to be, I wanted to to like fill up this genre that I love with people who you don't always see and who you don't see or you don't see enough of. Like I wanted queer characters. I wanted disabled characters. I wanted characters who were dealing with mental, mental health issues. I wanted people who were a little bit poor. I wanted people who were like unrepentant criminals and, and it's, it's been fun. Yeah. And so you and I
2: met Obviously we started working together about five years ago, but then we met before that when you participated in the Avon Fanlit program, which was I think about 12 weeks where we would give a prompt every week and then people would write to that prompt. And I remember you had a prompt, the very first one and you like changed the gender of the characters. And we were like, oh my God, it's incredible. Like we all fell in love with it so much. And I think, and so that was kind of like a fun little interaction. Was that the first time you had written something, or was it sort of had you been doing it before, and that was kind of the beginning of of just that one?
1: That was the first time I had written anything for an audience since I was like a, a teenager writing like fanfic on like Prodigy forums. Okay, like that was that was yeah. Like I had, but at that point, I was also trying. I had like a, a few books that were like in the three chapter stage and then abandoned, like I had that, like I was in that that phase of writing where like you kind of know that you want to be doing it but you don't know what you want to be writing and you definitely haven't figured out a voice. And like the fan light competition definitely helped me figure out a lot about the, the voice question because when you have people responding to your writing it, that's often what they're responding to, you know? And it's really neat to be able to see in real time people connecting with what you're writing and giving you feedback that like this is good right because when you're just sitting there at home writing on your computer like you have no idea and that makes it really easy to abandon something too is because you like you read something you know it's garbage compared to the last book that you read and so like yeah it's really easy to just put that aside and never write anything again or to just like write something totally different and so having people having like like you know Lorraine Heath say like I, I you know I enjoy this having Beverly Jenkins say nice work like that's that's like massive when you are brand new to something and that's something that like has that's that definitely like it it emboldened me you know (laughs) and and um I don't I don't know if I would have I don't know if I would have had the guts to actually write a romance definitely not write a gay romance you know like if I hadn't had that experience
2: I, I love that program. I want us to do it again, because I think it was really great. I mean, I think so many people came out of that, including yourself, Susanna Irwin, Liana De La Rosa. I know there are people who I have forgotten um, who came out of that. And so I think it's always great when people get to connect and, and write romance. I and mean, so many voices came out of that, including yours.
1: Also, like it was a great chance to meet other people who were at the same stage of writing, right? Like, so that's how I met my critique partner who went on to be like, she's one of my best friends in the world, you know, like it's, and she basically messaged me and said, like, if you, you know, like, if you want someone who's going to read your stuff and not just be like squee, I love it, you know, um, I can do that. And I was like, we're friends now. (laughs) And that was it. And she's been reading my stuff ever since. Like that's, that's, and, and that's like invaluable to have somebody who can give you, who's like, and it also turned out that she's you know like often when you're writing you have somebody in mind right like you have a you have an audience sometimes it's like a general audience and sometimes it's like you have to just write a book and be like well at least this one person in the world will like will like it and like and she's she's that person like I'm always writing for some composite of like you and her and like and this other reader who generally likes any time that I like she just is uncritically supportive of even the if I if wrote something really bad, she'd still like it. Okay. So that's like you have to know that there's somebody who like the unconditional, you know. And it's um so it that the contest was really was really great in helping people make connections because that's really, really hard. If you are like an introverted type of person and you don't want to be all over every single forum and you're not like particularly interested in like meeting and greeting people in real life having a situation where you're all but forced to interact with people who are in the same boat as you is really great. And it's low stakes, right? Like the the worst thing that can happen is like, is nothing. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I think you guys should do it again. I've I've already volunteered that I would help, that I would judge or whatever it is. So yeah, I totally think you should.
2: Okay, we'll we'll get on that. can you tell us a little bit about the plot of the Queer Principles of Kit Webb?
1: Sure. So there is a bratty, spoiled aristocrat who who is the oldest son of a duke and he's all set to inherit the dukedom from his jerk of a father when he realizes that his parents' marriage wasn't valid. His father was married before. Okay. So he decides that what he needs to do is basically extort money from his father because he has no money of his own. So he needs to extort money from his horrible father who hates him. And that way he and his best friend slash mother-in-law can live comfortably. Okay. So he decides that what he's going to do is hire a highwayman to hold his father up. And this is like this, the highwayman points out, like, this is not your smartest way to rob people. Okay, like this is not this is not smart. But for plot reasons that you're just going to have to trust me on, it actually does make sense. Okay, And so the highwayman, meanwhile, has been he is semi-retired. Like he is he cannot he injured himself a year ago. He was shot. And so he cannot really ride a horse particularly well and his partner in crime has just vanished and is dead. And so he can't really, he really wishes he were robbing people, but he can't. And so this guy comes up to him and says, this is what I need you to do. And he's so tempted, but he knows he can't do it himself. So he says, okay, how about I teach you how to do it? And so they, and so now they have to spend time together with um, the grumpy highwayman teaching the spoiled aristocrat how to like throw a punch and do that sort of thing. And really they're like hanging out and eating baked goods and drinking coffee because the highway, the retired highwayman owns a coffee house. So it's like a cozy, it's like a cozy crime situation.
2: Um, So I feel Highwaymen have always really inspired my imagination. I remember loving the Alfred Noyes, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, poem, especially, I mean, in the second Anne of Green Gables movie, and Shirley recites it. And then in high school, I became extremely obsessed with um, Laguna McKenna's song, Uh, where she, you know, recorded a version of it. Um, So I obviously, when you were like Highwaymen, I was like, oh my god. (laughs) Uh, So what drew your fascination to Highwaymen?
1: So I like when criminals are good. Okay, like that's really where we're starting. I really, really like that. But also I I enjoy the aesthetic. Like I really like the, like the boots. Okay. I like lace and uh, boots were up um, to his thigh. Boots were, like (laughs) it's, like how can you resist like right um and I like I like um long hair like this is okay I like I've mentioned lace I like just the general aesthetics of the period where you have high heels and you have men wearing bright colors and makeup and all of that I cannot resist it and the idea to stick a guy in a wig and like um like a pink embroidered coat and high heels like with a highwayman, it was just not, like I'm not strong enough to resist it. So that's what, it had to be done. It's amazing I waited this long, actually, you know?
2: No, it's true. Um, well, and I think one of the reasons why you were able to do that is because you are moving from the Regency period, which the men, you know, they kind of dress more like the Mr. Darcy's, which you guys have seen on all of the, uh, you know, BBC shows and the movies. And you're moving into the Georgian era, which is much more flamboyant and, you know, men are wearing high heels and, you know, what inspired you to make that kind of period change? Was it just because you wanted silks and and hair or (laughs) was there something in addition to that?
1: I really wanted to write something different. Like, I feel like, I think after a certain number of books in the same period, you said 13, right? Like it was after a certain number of books in the same period time period. See, some people can do it. Like I was just thinking about this. Like there are some, there are some authors who could write 500 books, not only in the same period, but like the same house. Okay. And they could make it like every single story would be totally new and fresh, but I needed just something to kind of like jumpstart my creativity, something that, something different, anything different. Okay. And, and like the regency, the, the period that I'm writing about is early enough so that, Thing, there are certain facts of life that are different. People dress different. Um, like transportation's really different. Like roads are pretty decent in the Regency. Okay, like you can get from point A to point B um, without it being too like dramatically terrible. And but like just a few generations earlier, the roads were just raw and like you couldn't you couldn't get fifty miles in some in some instances without it. Like you could you could walk faster. And so that presents all kinds of like interesting plot dilemmas. Like when you can't get places quickly or when it's, you can't communicate quickly. Um, so it was just different enough for it to be interesting to me, but it wasn't so different that it would be like really alienating. I'm not writing about like Vikings, right? Like I, I'm not like, like, so there are people who like, who there are a lot of people who liked my Regency books, right? I don't want them to feel like I've cast them aside because I need to write about like Saxon chieftains or whatever right like I like this is like we're close enough in in location and in period that it's comfortable but it's also far enough away that I feel like invigorated that's the extremely long answer to your question
2: (laughs) no I think that's great and I just wanted to make sure so your books are set in the 1750s so I just wanted to make and then Regency is about a, in, in romance land, romance Regency is about 1800 to 1820. Um, so, you know, you're going about 50 years earlier, but I mean, I, I think it's a really fresh and exciting um, change. And Percy, who you describe as these world aristocrat, who I, I just love him. I think he's a wonderful character. He's so charming and has such a wonderful sense of himself. Like he knows i mean his clothes are very important to him his his book is very important to him i think that's something you don't often see um in a lot of characters and especially heroes he knows the ways to present himself to get the to get what people like what he wants from people you know he knows how important appearances it are and you describe his clothing like the silks and the brocades and i was like i want every single of these outfits i want all of these like you know coats and breeches Um, And you really also just as carefully describe the kind of maybe less beautiful, more utilitarian world of Kit Webb, The Highwayman. Um, And I'm just wondering, what was your research like going into this book?
1: Oh, like research was a total joy because there are these period cosplayers like on Instagram. So, you know, there are like very attractive men who like wear, who like wear like just perfect down to the last stitch clothing. And so you can look at that and you can see like the like. So you can see not only like in, in, in illustrations, you can get an idea of like what something, you know, how how the embroidery was, like, is this brocade? Like, is it lined in satin or is it lined in something else? But like you can't really see how it falls on somebody when it's been perfectly tailored, which is that's what I that's what like I needed to know, right? I need to know what if this guy, if this guy who's like spent three hours grooming himself, like walks into a coffee shop, I need to know like what the effect is going to be on somebody who's trying his absolute best not to leer at him. Okay. And so, um, yeah, like Instagram, the Instagram people were enormously happy with that. And like my all of my mess- my email and my DMs and my Twitter and my um, Instagram messages have been for the past year filled with people sending me links to images. And so it's been, it's been a lot of collaboration and a lot of help. <laughs>
2: um, I, I think that is so true that the way that it looks on someone, it's going, you know, we have things in the museums, but it doesn't show you that like what his thighs are going to look like. In those breaches, you know, I'm like, how that, you know, coat is going to bring out his eyes. You know, I think that is, I love that you went to Instagram. the the cosplayers and costume and fascinating. Everyone should go check that out, stuff out. It's really interesting. Um, and so you mentioned a bit earlier that you wanted to write about criminals who are good, and <laughs> and I wanted to ask about that. I mean, your kind of your informal tagline slash formal tagline on your website is fall in love eat the rich and (laughs) your twitter bio you say you're a writer of marxist tracks by with boning so i wanted to know kind of what that means to you and then kind of you know why you find the kind of criminal but they're a good guy so alluring and, and why readers also enjoy it
1: so, like, with all apologies apologies to people who have actually, like, studied this and can say it intelligently, what I really mean is that in a capitalist system, it's inherently unfair, okay? Like, you have people, if you don't, if people, if there are people who do not have enough to eat and don't have a shelter and don't have shelter and don't have other basic human needs and human rights, then it is okay. Like it is morally okay for them to take what they need. Like that's, and that is like the, the premise of a lot of my books, even when it's not explicit, like that it is okay for you to, and, some, and sometimes that means like hurting other people. And that is like a thing to have moral conflict about, but this does not mean that you don't, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to, to take what you need to live. Um, and so I just wanted to make that completely and totally explicit in this book and have characters just say it out loud because at the time people said it like at the you know at the time there were people and this is like these are not like Marxists. this is 1750 there was no Marxism like this is these are people who are just pointing out that there's a totally different set of what's what's legal and what's not legal of what's fair and what's not fair depending on whether you have like food in your belly so yeah I like that. Oh, and also, like, if you live in a system where it is illegal for you to, co- to have the kind of sex that you want to have, then the entire legal system is called into question, okay? And if something that is, like, fundamental to your identity is illegal, then maybe stealing bread is just fine, you know? And stealing stuff from rich people is always fine.
2: Yeah, it... it- I, I really I think that's so true that when your sexuality and your just basic who you want to love is considered wrong then I think that like takes that justice system and it's like okay well you're fundamentally flawed so let's see the other ways in that you're flawed and um I think with your books you you always do a really great job of kind of exploring this and also exploring the kind of the privileges of the aristocratic world because there are a lot and romance especially historical romance has really always been centered on the kind of rich and a lot of times it's because it's fun to read about balls and and parties and that is always in the context of these rich people who often have gotten wealthy off of the suffering of poor people and so I think you always do a great job in your books of kind of explaining that like yes they have privilege but also this is what's happening this is why
1: they have that privilege yeah and it's also like the wanting to read about people who are like materially safe like wanting to read about people who do definitely do not need to worry about like paying rent or getting or having food on the table or anything like that or like paying their kids into their kids college fund like that's a like that's like completely and totally valid and I like when I'm in a certain mood like I too need to read about like lots of inherited wealth, like I get it, you know, but it's, I think that there's, it's also like neat to create that sense of safety, that sense of characters who are going to be okay. And maybe like, and, and maybe are not in an economically precarious situation, but who aren't in that like upper class.
2: Yeah. And, and kind of going into that with talking about how, you know, sexuality, you know, wasn't legal a lot of times, like to, to do the act often, um, you know, in your books, you're writing about queer people, and this one, you're writing about queer men, you know, finding love in a time that we often think as less liberal than the one we live in now. Um, is there anything that would surprise a modern reader about that, the community at the queer community at that time, or something that, you know, I think we often think about things very kind of black and white, and obviously the world has never been like that.
1: I think that like a lot of modern readers would be surprised just that there was a queer community, right? That there was like, there have been, you know, open secrets about like where to go if you want to meet a certain type of person since forever. But when people die, families go to a lot of effort to burn any letters that may have been incriminating, okay? So when there's, when like you, when the historical record reflects an absence, that's not evidence that they're, were queer people. But also there is a lot of evidence of, of queer people. It just gets papered over. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think, you know, we are seeing that more and more as more history is being kind of uncovered about these people. And I have always loved that about your books that you are kind of exploring this. And I've also loved, you know, your books are really well-known for being kind of cozy and warm, like a fuzzy blanket on like a cold night. Um, But you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, being queer in a, in a society where that is, you know, maybe not in people frown upon it or, you know, more serious. And then you also really discuss some heavy topics, you know, in queer principles, you're talking about grief and loss. And how do you balance writing about those sort of tough emotional topics without it kind of weighing down the narrative and keeping that, that warmth to it?
1: One thing that I try to do is like when somebody is dealing with heavy stuff i try to make sure they also have good things okay like and if they don't have good things at the beginning of the book i make sure that they are acquiring good things through it like they have a support network um they have people who know them for who they are they have people who they feel comfortable talking to and i think that when you're going through something rough if you have those things it's easier you know and also obviously having a partner who can help you is also really great. But making sure they have a support network beyond their partner is also is also really important. And I like to make sure that I pack my books filled with that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. And I I feel like your books always this uh I know this book has things like that. Your book always has like happy making things like cats or dogs or little babies (laughs) or things that make people smile and I feel like they're always really placed like it's okay here's a cat and like not in a bad way in in a way that's enjoyable to the reader and you're like oh this is so nice to read
1: about. (laughs) I mean like people like people take enormous comfort in like animals and in warm beverages and like blankets and this kind of thing and you know like and sometimes there's the sensory experience of having that in the book you're reading, can also you can, it can that can be like contagious, you know? Like you can feel you can feel com- comfortable just because a character has a puppy, for example.
2: Yeah, and and in this book, um, you speaking of warm beverages, uh, Kit runs a coffee shop, and so is he like a Georgian hipster, quote unquote? Um, because, like, what was the importance of coffee shops in this time period, and especially to someone like Kit?
1: So coffee houses were super important from about like the like the late 1600s right through to the beginning of the regency. And they were places where people could go and do business or talk about politics. And if you were a liberal, you might go to this coffee shop. And if you were conservative, you might go to that coffee shop. And if you wanted to talk about books, you might go here. And so they were very like there were like micro communities at different at different coffee houses. And um, and you could go and for, you would drop a penny. You would give a penny for your admittance, And then you could basically hang out all day and you could, they were, there'd be newspapers and there would you could, if you wanted to pay extra, you could get food, but it was a place that was like warm and dry and out of the rain. And you could just hang out and have a conversation with people. It was very much the way that coffee had, you know, the, it's that third place thing that, that coffee shops often are today. So, and I also, and also many of them were like literal duns of thieves. Like you had crimes being staged in coffee houses there was um there was one coffee house in London that where they basically invented like an entire criminal argo like in in order to plan crimes and like do fencing and stuff without any potential informers knowing what they were on to onto So I like the idea of it being a, a cultural center, but also a criminal center and also the place where you can get the warm beverage on the community.
2: I, yeah, I think it's such a great setting for this book. I think so much of it takes place there and it, it has all those layers. So I feel like Percy really feels that when he walks in, he feels that, you know, this is sort of cozy, but also there's crime happening and he's also fascinated by that. And, and then he's also fascinated by the person who owns it. And so it, it kind of becomes this great, confluence of of place and desire um and then one last question so this book obviously we're so excited about it It comes out June 8th could you tell us just a tiny bit about your next book
1: sure the next book is a sort of road trip romance between two people who really shouldn't like one another at all so i think that's the most i can say and marion that's, that's very non-spoilery <laughs> Yeah, I, think, I think, and marion is one of the characters it's the best friend she's the best friend slash mother-in-law of percy from Uweb. and she is um she's very difficult and prickly yeah and uh, i i think
2: uh i think readers are going to love her character when they read her in queer principles and then they're excited to see what she's up to um Thank you so much for chatting with me, Kat. Uh, I cannot wait for this book to come out. Again, it's on sale June 8th, and I think all of the librarians are just absolutely going to fall in love with Kit and Percy.
1: Thanks, Al. Thank you
0: for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at HarperCollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.